Hi, it's Nahani Rouse, here to kick off the spring season of Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive, where gender, history, and Jewish culture meet. Just a quick note first, if you haven't already done it, please head over to jwa.org slash podcast survey and take a couple of minutes to give us your feedback about Can We Talk. Thanks. Now on to the show. Listen, ever since third grade, you know, I've wondered, like, how do you take on a bully? You know, how do you do it? And I think the answer is you do it together and you do it, you do it with allies and you do it as a team. That's Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jody Cantor. In 2017, she and Megan Toohey broke the story in the New York Times about Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein's sexual abuse of women. Several women went on the record for their story, and afterwards, dozens more women spoke out. Their work lit a fire under the Me Too movement, led to Harvey Weinstein's conviction, and prompted a national reckoning with sexual abuse. Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey chronicled the experience of reporting the Harvey Weinstein story in a bestseller called She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement. It was recently made into a film called She Said. In this episode of Can We Talk, we hear from Jody Cantor about how she built trust with the women who became her sources, how Weinstein tried to pull the Jew-to-Jew card with her, and how she felt about the film's portrayal of her as a working mom. I first just want to ask you, what's it like to see yourself and your life's work on a big screen like that? Oh, I mean, uh, it's surreal and it's an honor. And listen, we're very grateful to the filmmakers because our jobs are to persuade people to tell the truth and to build their confidence in doing so and and to persuade the public that people who tell the truth are not tattletales, they're not disloyal, they're in fact, you know, really important figures uh, in our democracy um, and figures to be honored, I think, and thanked. And so I feel like the film really helped make that case in a cinematic sense. So listen, I mean, it's not a documentary. It's not an exact representation of what happened. The film is really lovely. um, But, you know, it's an artistic interpretation of what happened. One of the things I really loved about the portrayal was the way your character showed the combination of chutzpah and compassion that you approached your subjects and your reporting with. Um, And I... You know, I, I wanted to know, like, what, what you learned about the interviewing process through talking with women who had been violated and, and raped in some cases. Well, thank you for saying that, because you're right. I mean, reporting is a combination of chutzpah and respect. Um, so I wasn't coming new to this. I mean, I had had, you know, 20 years of journalism experience when I went into the Weinstein story, and I had, you know, taken on big you know, corporations. I had um, investigated all sorts of institutions and I had done a lot of work involving gender and gender in the workplace. So I think that it wasn't a question of learning things from scratch. I think it was a question of taking everything that I had learned and applying it to a task to the hardest story I had ever worked on, where, I mean, listen, you know, some of these women were legally bound from speaking to us. They had um, signed settlements saying that, you know, if they wanted recompense, they could never speak to another human being about what happened. And early in the reporting process, I called a lawyer in London 
um, for his advice because there was a British victim I wanted to approach. And without telling him any of the specifics of the situation, I, I described the generalities. And he said, what you're doing is irresponsible. You know, you could cause harm to these women. They could be sued you know, by whoever it is that they signed the settlement with. They could, they could be financially ruined, you know, by your project. So that was very chastening. And, you know, you have to have a lot of confidence that you're doing the right thing. Um, and it was very, very, very delicate surgery. So I think the answer to your question is... Um, that investigation felt like a test of the tools that Megan and I believe in. You know, we we had made the case to, you know, many people in the past about going on the record. But this was just more extreme. You know, it's like, can I look at your settlement agreement, even though it's technically like a legal violation for you to show it to me? Um, Ashley Judd, will you put your career on the line? to go on the record for the story and how can I make a persuasive case for you to do so? I mean, her bravery was immense, but I also had to, I had to make the case that there was a path, you know, that it could work without, without promising too much or sounding like a used car salesman. Um, and for Laura Madden, she was going into breast cancer surgery, you know, and she was really nervous. So, you know, it was also like a moral test for me as a journalist, you know, can, can I responsibly put this woman through this? Is it, is, it, is it an okay thing to do? Did you have any doubts? Oh, sure. I mean, remember that, you know, none of this was foretold to the idea that, that these women were going to be lauded as heroes and there was going to be a giant reaction and a global uprising, be, you know, spurred by their stories. We didn't know any of that. I mean, we were, Hollywood executives were, lecturing me that I was naive and that sexual harassment was just a part of Hollywood and everybody accepted it. Mm -hmm. What in your background and education do you think prepared you to go up against this giant, um, you know, I don't even know what to call it exactly, but like block of silence and, and intimidation. Yeah. Yeah. No. And Harvey Weinstein was a bully. And I think listen, ever since third grade, you know, I've wondered, like, how do you take on a bully? You know, how do you do it? And I think the answer is you do it together and you do it, you do it with allies and you do it as a team. Um, what am my background? Well, I mean, I think most obviously the teamwork and the times and being immersed in this journalism uh, for a long time leading up to this, you know, having time to really learn the craft, having Rebecca Corbett has been my editor of 17 years now. So this is like a really long dialogue we've been having about, you know, power, secrets, you know, gender, change, Um, you know, having the partnership with Megan for sure. Um, And then just having the power of these women's stories. Here's one thing I really, 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 I'm so grateful for with the book and the movie as a journalist, you often end up in these searing, unforgettable interviews that don't fully translate to the black and white of the newspaper page. And listen, I'm a newspaper person. I love that form. The article form has held up incredibly well over time. But, you know, there's something brisk about black and white newsprint. And you're often saying to yourself, did I really bring home to the reader, you know, what it meant 
to sit in a darkened cafe with this person and just be bowled over by the power of what they were saying, you know, and just feel the emotion of it. There's a scene in the film with my character, Zoe Kazan plays me and Samantha Morton plays Elda Perkins and they're having a conversation in a cafe. And then there's another scene between my character and Laura Madden. And those two conversations, I think, convey what it's like to sit down with somebody and hear a story of that power. I felt such shame that I let him do that. Did he think that he had done the same to other girls? I thought that he must have tried it. But that they'd all they'd all said no. It was like he t- took my voice that day. Just when I was about to start finding it. Why did you call it she said? <laughs> that's, I mean, honestly, that's one of my favorite parts because those two little words say everything. And to us, those two little words are not simple at all. They convey all the complex layers of who spoke and who didn't speak and who are the women who will never come forward about these stories. And, you know, the she is mostly obviously the victims, but it's also Megan and I and what happens when the narration becomes female and who were the women who were legally prohibited, uh, you know, from speaking. And um, and how did the story get so universal, right? I mean, she said, it's not, you know, the actress said or the former assistant said, it's she said. And that's because in this story, the this particular strain of women became symbolic, you know, of women all over the globe. Um, so anyway, that I have to say all these years later, that title still makes me happy because... I just, I feel so much power in those two little words. Yeah, it also highlights the kind of dangerous power of silence and and being silenced. Exactly. So there's a moment um, that you have with a key source where you discover that you're both related to Holocaust survivors. And it's at a moment when you're trying to convince him to help you uncover the the cover-up of Weinstein's abuses. Do you draw a parallel between the silence around sexual abuse and the silence around Holocaust survivors' experiences? Um, very carefully and very personally, yes, but very carefully and very personally. And I say that because... So my grandmother is a Holocaust survivor. She's actually, she's in a hospice now. We're going to lose her soon. But having grandparents who are Holocaust survivors was, you know, absolutely the most formative experience of my life. And I grew up, you know, around survivors at bungalow colonies in the Catskills, especially in the summer, um, in addition to during the year. And, you know, there was always this question, even when I was a child of, you know, who were the ones who spoke about their experiences and who were the ones who didn't? Because they sort of came in two flavors. There were like, there were the talkers and there were the, there were the silent ones. And in my own family, my grandmother, who was a talker, fared better psychologically than my grandfather, who was very bottled up about what had happened. Um, so I do feel that like from a young age, I had studied this question of who talks and who doesn't and 
Should you get them to open up? How do they open up? What opens somebody up? Does it change with time? You know, um, but but I think you have to be careful with the analogy because you know that like as you know the Holocaust can be summoned sometimes for metaphors and analogies where it doesn't necessarily belong, um, and you know, and I I think like the thing. Megan and I would really emphasize is that each of these women is so individual and different and each of them really had to decide, you know, what was right for them personally. I've talked to many women who came forward about sexual abuse who were glad they did it, even if it was very difficult, you know, and also the knowledge that they can help other people in the process is a big, I mean, that, that is, um, that's a big motivation. I mean, that, that I think is the primary motivation. Mm-hmm. You said that, um, that, that Harvey Weinstein tried to pull the Jew to Jew card with you. Yeah. What did he do? Um, it's been pretty consistent. <laughs> um, uh, he, I think from the beginning, um, you know, look, he listen, he conducted a campaign against our story, including hiring Israeli um, you know, ex-intelligence agents and private spies to try to dupe us and our sources, you know. And I mean, these people like came to my apartment building, they took pictures. One of them posed as a women's rights advocate, um, you know, and tried to get me to like, I, I don't know, meet with her, or sign on to her program. So even as he was <laughs> sicking these Israeli agents on me, um, he was looking up, he and his people were looking at my background and trying to appeal to me that way. And it was very much a tone of like, you're Jewish, I'm Jewish, we understand each other, you know, he's made these Holocaust movies, um, like almost a kind of tribal, you know, trying to relate to me, at, which I... So as a reporter in those situations, your job is not to react. Like it's really not good if you lash out or lecture somebody because it gives them an opportunity to turn it into a dispute, which you don't want. Like I was never going to give Harvey (laughs) Weinstein an opportunity to be like, this is a personal fight between me and Jody Cantor. I mean, Jody Cantor just doesn't like me. We had an altercation. So my reaction had to remain very private. But privately, I mean, it was just outrageous. Like the idea that he was taking this very sacred thing about me and using it um, to try to protect himself against accountability for really serious abuse. I mean, it was it was pretty gross and it was also very motivating in terms of getting the story. Mm. Did you find that any reactions to the story got filtered through the lens of the stereotype of Jews controlling Hollywood? I think that's a really good question. I think that, well, one reaction for sure was that Jews are very embarrassed by the Harvey Weinstein story, as they are by, uh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's last name. Um, And they or we are embarrassed in part because these stories could appear to play into anti-Semitic stereotypes of, you know, Jews as avaricious, uh, like, you know, taking advantage of people, um, wielding power in a really bad way, um, 
preying on innocent people. Um, and so it's very uncomfortable. But one of the things that, you know, I tell Jewish audiences all the time is that, listen, if there's one thing this body of reporting proves, it's that this behavior is universal. I mean, that like these Me Too stories, part of what's so staggering here is that they come from every culture, every economic sphere, every religion, every area of the country and the globe, um, every income level. They're, these stories are completely universal, no matter where you look. And so there was nothing Jewish about this abuse. These stories are universal. They exist in every culture. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, back to the film, it, it shows um, how much your work percolated into your family life. <laughs> how do you feel about that emphasis, that portrayal? Oh, I thought it was beautiful. Megan's depiction is actually like much more personal than mine because, um, you know, Megan, uh, had postpartum depression um, after her child was born. And she came out of the Weinstein, she came into the Weinstein investigation from a very difficult personal place in her life. And it was part of what we first bonded over because I had had it with my first child. And then I think the stuff that the film portrays about the questions your kids ask you and wanting to protect them are very universal. And also I think that the movie does a good job of portraying the challenge of being fully immersed in a very difficult professional project while raising young kids, but it does so I think with a lot of dignity. Like I like I mean there are there are a lot of um scenes of my character like answering the phone while she's pushing strollers to the point where colleagues teased me about it because I mean, actually, I do my work at a desk, you know, <laughs> yes. where I can no, type I was, things. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, exactly. Like... Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, it's very important to write things down yes. when you get a when you get an important phone call, um, which you can't do if you're pushing a stroller. Um, but um, but I, what I really liked about it was that I think they imbued it with a kind of dignity and grace. And even as you're watching the character juggle. And you get that it's an important phone call. They never made her look incompetent for having young children. You like you never got the feeling of like she's gonna blow the call because you know the toddler's throwing Cheerios across the room. <laughs> absolutely, um, absolutely. So, so I thought it was. I thought it. I thought it was a really beautiful aspect yeah. of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like all the president's men, but you don't see Woodward and Bernstein answering calls from their sources while they're making their kids lunch. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned that the film reveals the questions that your kids ask you. When you were working on the story, what did you first tell your daughter about what you were working on? And how did you talk about it? So Tali was 11. And I tried to keep it from her for a long time. And I mostly did. Um, Tali's very good at keeping secrets. But, uh, you know there are times that I don't really tell her what I'm working on. And this was one of them in part because I think it's just not fair to her. I mean, to, to like the, the level of secret keeping that I have to do in my job is very intense. And not only is it, not only I think would my sources be concerned, you know, to find out that a young kid knew what was happening, but I, but I think it's like to burden her with that level of knowledge. I don't think it's right. Um, so I kept a lot from her. But the problem, you know, that was a six-month investigation. And so as things went on and on, 
you know, there's only so much you can hide in a New York City apartment. And she's also a very attentive kid. And um, I was doing things like sending her into the bedroom, you know, with an iPad and headphones while I was talking to Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, and so she did eventually start asking questions. And, and you know, and also it became possible to tell her things. Um, it was possible to tell her, like, the topic of what I was working on without, for instance, revealing anything about who I was speaking with. Um, and it was a real... I think the film portrays this well. Like, it was, a, it was really... It was, like, a really powerful shared experience in those moments like her I mean her exposure to the whole thing obviously became much greater after publication and it was really the aftermath you know that she that she lived through more fully with me because that was all public um but I mean what I hope it was for her and and for many people was you know ultimately a really optimistic galvanizing experience that says that even the most painful material can be confronted and that there is strength in numbers and that you know all of the sorrow and all of this anguish can be turned in a more productive um, direction and that you know a really small group of people can have enormous impact. Do you think that we're as a society responding the right way to what this movement and your reporting has revealed? Well, <laughs> um, listen, it's really important that Megan and I refrain from being activists or telling anybody what to do or telling anyone what laws to pass. I know that it may sound funny the first time you hear it, but there's a paradox of doing this work where you just have to be very pure about only pursuing the truth. And the second you become an activist, you you kind of lose that posture because like even during the investigation, some sources would say, okay, go get him, go get Weinstein. And it was like, no, like we're not, we're not actually trying to get anybody. We're trying to get the truth, you know? And once you're guided by that, then like, like that's your Kavanaugh and then like everything else falls into place because then you're fair to everybody, you know, then you're, then people know that your um, reporting doesn't have any spin on the ball. Then people trust you because, you know, they feel that you're not using them for anything, that your objectives are, are very pure. And it's, you know, like on the playing field of democracy, we have to stick to our role, which is it's our role to put hidden information on the table for society to consider, and then everybody else has to decide what to do. Hmm. Um, you've recently, or you're currently, writing about the Supreme Court and about, um, like, for example, leaks regarding the Hobby Lobby case. And I, I would, I'm going to recommend to people to listen to your interview on the daily about this because it's oh, incredible and your source is incredible. Um, mm -hmm. very, very moving. I'm wondering if you draw any connections between that story and the Harvey Weinstein story. 
Sure. I mean, well, again, I'd be really careful with any analogies, but I think the thing I think about with almost all of these stories, and it's definitely true in both of these cases, is, you know, what's the culture of secrecy and how much secrecy is appropriate in these situations? And they're very different situations, but, you know, I think as somebody who, you know, walks up to strangers and asks them to reveal things, in the in the name of the public good, um, I would say there's a difference between privacy and secrecy. You know, lots of people and institutions deserve privacy. The first draft of a New York Times story written in our editing system is private. You know, it would be really horrible if that leaked. But secrecy that conceals problems, that prevents people from having honest conversations prevents society from having fruitful discussion. I mean, you know, I'm never going to stop making the case against that kind of secrecy. Thank you, Jody. My pleasure. It's, it's so great to be with you. Thank you for these wonderful questions. Nice to sit back and, uh, and take the other role for once. Jody Cantor is an investigative reporter for The New York Times and a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. With Megan Toohey, she co-wrote the book, She Said, breaking the sexual harassment story that helped ignite a movement. You can hear her talk in-depth about her reporting on the leaked Supreme Court Hobby Lobby decision on the New York Times podcast, The Daily. Thank you for joining us for Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. Our team includes Jen Richler and Judith Rosenbaum. Our theme music is by Girls in Trouble. JWA continues to collect and archive Jewish stories about Me Too experiences. You can share yours at jwa.org slash me too, or on JWA's Story Aperture mobile app. You can listen to Can We Talk online at jwa.org slash can we talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please help us spread the word by sharing this and your other favorite episodes with your friends. And share your feedback about Can We Talk with us at jwa.org slash podcast survey. I'm Nahani Rouse. Until next time.